1: Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friend's still laugh at me to this day.
2: Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. Marketers, learn the skills to navigate a changing world in a time when keeping up is essential. Take the first step with the Institute for Brand Marketing, an educational program designed in collaboration with IBM Watson Advertising and Adweek. This initiative provides complimentary, interactive courses, custom research, and thought leadership for marketers who are looking for continual learning and development. Visit adweek.com IBM to begin your complimentary courses today. That's adweek.com IBM. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm Doug Zanger, agency's editor for Adweek, sitting in this week uh, from the, the, the vaunted Portland Bureau and joining me today from that same bureau, we are, we are in the same city, in the same area, is our DNI reporter, Mary Emily O'Hara. How are you?
3: Hi, I'm good, Doug. Uh, It's rainy as usual here, and diversity and inclusion is on my mind. You know all the usual stuff.
2: Yeah, no, and I'm 100% with you. Uh, And quite a bit going on. We will talk about uh, a great new program coming up from AdWeek called Pride Stars. We'll we'll talk about that here in a second. But what I'd like to start with this uh, this week is uh, boy. Uh, not a shortage of things happening in uh, the brand world, and especially around DNI, and also in the agency world as well. We start with PepsiCo dropping Aunt Jemima, and Aunt Jemima along with Mrs. Butterworths, Uncle Ben's, uh, some of these other brands that have. I guess the best way to describe it is uh, their their history is based upon images that are really looking back at, you know, at a time around slavery, right? I mean, you know, these are brands that are, are longstanding, but we've come to a point, thankfully, in this world and in society, where everybody's taking a closer look at everything and making sure that uh, that we're not going down a destructive path. So, Mary, from your perspective, and I'll talk about agencies in a moment, but from your perspective, and you've covered a lot uh, in, in your past work, uh, I'm curious about What feels the same? What feels different right now?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, we started out this month not expecting any of this to happen, right? We had just gone through the pandemic. Um, That was kind of something that already took over the DNI beat. The DNI beat at Adweek is, of course, new, right? I was hired in, in February, and we were kicking it off with big plans, um, to really focus on the dni movement in in the advertising industry and in the brand world and then when the pandemic hit we got um, derailed a bit and focused on pandemic coverage and then the revolution happened right mm-hmm. and it's just been such a slow news month ever since I think that um <laughs> that when the when it first started with the protests um, around George floyd's killing we were all talking about, how, um, you know, this, these police brutality protests, they happen every few years. So I'm in my forties. Um, I've seen my entire life. I've seen from Rodney King to Amadou Diallo to Ferguson, just every few years, there's a particularly gruesome or painful, uh, beating or, or killing of an unarmed black person by police, um, or some sort of violent incident that just sparks so much righteous anger um and when when we first talked about it at ad week that uh last week of may first week of june i remember saying this nothing's going to happen this happens every few years i was very skeptical because of seeing that happen over and over again in our culture i didn't expect any change to actually come of it i thought people are going to protest for a couple weeks and then it's going to drift away like it always does And I'm really happy to sit on the other end of June now and say I was completely wrong. I never saw this turning into um, something that would have an immediate impact that would actually pressure leadership at every level from agencies to brands to political leadership to actually make a ton of changes to put a bunch of money where their mouths are to really initiate a lot of DNI overhauls. I mean, the. The impact of this movement this month has just been incredible, and it's been like nothing we've ever seen before.
2: No, and, you're, and we talked about it where it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pain, but there's also uh, a lot of hope in this. And, I, and we talked to uh, Lincoln Stevens, who founded the Marcus Graham Project down in Dallas. We'll uh, we'll play his interview with me uh, a little bit later. But on the agency end, yeah, we're starting to see this discussion that has been going on in circles for decades finally start to break that circle. And we've seen the open letter from from black leaders and um, staffers and agencies We've also seen that letter lead to a partnership with the four A's. We see holding companies, um, and uh, the, this is a we'll see kind of thing. We will be checking in on this to to chart progress, but hopefully their words result in action. And I think that's what we're looking at right now. And the brands are leading that, which is, is great, but, <clears throat> excuse me, from our beat, uh, from the agency side, uh, you know we'll see and and we're going to continue to dig in plus we're we're talking to more influential people within the industry who have a lot to say and these are new voices and i think that's what i really like about this is that we're getting so many more new voices into this that it's painting a picture from which we can build and that's what that's what excites me and we'll have that conversation with Lincoln here in a bit but i want to pivot to something that is extremely exciting that launched today. It is Pride Stars. Now, Yay! Mary, yes. Now Mary, give us a bit of a background on this.
3: Yeah, the the Pride Stars project is really exciting. This is our baby at the the diversity and inclusion beat at Adweek and it's really our first big um LGBTQ industry award at Adweek and it was such an interesting process because there was a lot of spreadsheets that went into so it. Many there, so, so many
2: spreadsheets. So many spreadsheets.
3: spreadsheets. <laughs> so many people uh, helped nominate uh, people for Pride Stars, LGBTQ leaders. There was there was hundreds of people on the initial list. And through a nomination process, um, through so many people weighing in and making these decisions, we managed to whittle it down to 15 incredible LGBTQ leaders. And they really represent so many different aspects of this industry from – advertising and marketing agencies to uh, media, culture, and brands, they they're the people who are really pushing LGBTQ visibility and diversity forward in so many ways. And one of the things I'm also really proud of with this list, um, and this this was something we did intentionally when we started a couple of months ago. It, it's not a new thing, but we were very focused on diversity on the list in so many ways. So, not only is it majority women majority people of color it's trans inclusive there's also just people that really represent different sort of levels of of representation in that we have some big celebrities like Lena Waithe and Bowen Yang of course the first gay asian cast member on uh, SNL and these these people who are pushing forward visibility in in mainstream ways and constantly like sort of exposing queer culture to people who have never seen it before. And then we have people like MSNBC's Yvette Miley, who doesn't, you don't tend to see on these kinds of lists because she's been working behind the scenes for decades. like the people who have really been opening the door by just running the internal diversity programs for years, Randall Tucker, diversity and inclusion chief at MasterCard um, and then, sort of like these next generation folks, like Kendra Freeman and Rachel Rapino at Mendy, who just launched their company and are really just changing things up in cannabis, and and Michaela Mendelson, who is um, one of few transgender CEOs, and also runs the Trans Can Work project, which is putting so many trans people into professional positions and giving them jobs and. We just have so many people on this list who are really, really doing the work. And I'm so proud of that. No, that's great. And we're going to go right now to your
2: conversation with Assad Duna. Uh, uh, let us know what Assad does uh, over in London. Uh, he's, he's just doing great work.
3: Yeah, and one of the one of the funny things about the conversation is I kept calling him Assad, and he, he at the end of the conversation I apologize well, for
2: British. He calls himself, you know, it's Assad or Assad. Right?
3: Yeah, he was like, it's the British version, acid. It's okay. Everyone calls me Assad. So we had that conversation <laughs> about. Um, <clears throat> About British accents. But yeah, Saad runs The Unmistakables, which is a creative consultancy and a multicultural agency, and they do incredible diversity campaigns. Um, so he's very firmly, uh, you know, making changes in the advertising world, but then also in the LGBTQ community in the UK. He's really just a force of incredible change. He runs a lot of queer Muslim events and um, is on the... the organizing committee for London Pride and has done a lot of work to make sure that Muslim inclusion in the LGBTQ community is consistent and is pushing forward. So we had such a great conversation about not just his work in the agency world and um, in pushing forward that queer Muslim visibility, but he just had some really good insights too about the, the Black Lives Matter revolution that we've seen over these last couple of weeks and why brands are actually listening and responding to that so strongly for pretty much the first time.
2: Well, Mary, can't thank you enough and the rest of the team at Adweek for all of the hard work that was put in. Enjoy this issue. Uh, and it's our, our first and it's definitely going to be continuing on year after year. And we're excited to present this year's honorees and let's go ahead and listen to that interview that you had with Assad.
1: I'm Asad Dunner, the founder of The Unmistakables. We're a diversity consultancy based in London, and our job is about making diversity everyone's business. So we work with C-suites and leaders who want to infuse inclusive thinking all the way through their organizations, which is really timely given what's going on right now. Um, in a previous life, I worked for Weber Shamwick of Fleischman Hillard, um, on a number of accounts like Netflix and HSBC. Um, and alongside that, I was also the volunteer director of communications for Pride in London, which is the biggest Pride in the UK, the third largest one day annual event in the capital city. Um, so, got a really good insight of how brands get involved in something like Pride uh, and what it means for the community and what the community needs from it nowadays.
3: And of course, you are also one of Adweek's inaugural Class of Pride Stars honorees. Um, You are among the 15 people that were awarded for their LGBT advocacy, their diversity and inclusion work, and just basically for being badass LGBT people in the the ad world. So I just want to congratulate you and thank you for joining us today as well. Um, why don't we start just kind of kicking off and getting into Pride? I mean, Pride is next week. It it typically falls on the last week in in June. But of course, this year is really different. Um, And I think it's not just because of the pandemic, which is originally what what we thought was going to happen was that the whole thing was just going to be canceled, right? But now it's sort of bubbling back up into a protest movement. And I see that um, in the UK, you've also been very involved in that. So can you tell us a little bit about what the protests have looked like over there and what you think uh, the transformation of this year's LGBT pride is going to be like in the UK as well?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question because I think when the pandemic happened, we went into lockdown here in the UK. And at that point, uh, prides were being cancelled and postponed um, until next year. And and I think people were starting to make their peace with that, but not really knowing what that would look like. And from that, you had... Um, announcements of virtual prides and digital prides that are taking place. And then um, George Floyd was murdered. And here in the UK, the protests that we saw in the US started to come over here. Um, the, I think the, the tweet that you're mentioning that, that I had posted a couple of weeks ago as I was going through the local area that I live in, Peckham, um, and there was um, a a, protest, a peaceful protest happening there. Um, and then in the weekends afterwards, there were larger scale ones outside Downing Street, uh, and Westminster, where Parliament's based here, and I think what's happened as we approach Pride Weekend is that the so the official prides that were organised and that were going to take place aren't happening, but there's a real um, appetite and a need for people to be out there protesting because of the injustices in the world, and I, it's almost as if Pride has done a circular loop because it started as as a protest. It started with a with a trans black woman in New York throwing the shot glass. And then if we look at where black lives are today, there's still the continued uh, threat of police brutality and a lack of equality. So People are looking at Pride Weekend in this season and saying, well, actually, we need to get back to the roots and queer people's struggles and issues are the same as black people's struggles. And they're not even different. There's such an overlap because of intersectional identities and the fact that there are so many black queer people um, who are still fighting for rights and fighting for visibility. So yeah, you was, it, we're starting to see that. I mean, here, the official like Pride in London is not happening, but there are talks that there will be um other protests and, and marches happening through the city because we need to stand up and we need to fight.
3: Right. And I'm glad you brought up Stonewall because I think, um, and for those who don't know, of course, the Stonewall uprising in 1969 was <clears throat> the initial inspiration for the very first Pride Parade in New York City in the next year. And a lot of people forget that what happened that night at Stonewall was a response to police repression um, to the police raids that would happen at gay bars in the 60s and, and in earlier days, where the police would come in and arrest people for wearing um, you know, clothing of the opposite gender or what have you. They would just sort of find ways to shut down the gay bars and arrest queer and trans people. So a lot of times that, that history of pride does get lost, especially as it's become a you know, massive cultural celebration with a lot of funding, a lot of corporate sponsorship, and it's really become a marketing opportunity as well. Um, so I guess I wanted to, to get into that as well, to just see how do you think that now, now that we're seeing pride come full circle, starting as a protest, going back to a protest, and really focusing on these issues around policing and law enforcement, What do you think happened in between? How did Pride get from its protest roots to becoming just a huge multicultural marketing opportunity where brands and corporations poured, you know, anywhere from 10,000 to a million dollars into sponsoring a festival?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tracking the movement of society over time. So, when we marked Pride last year, every year there's a theme of Pride. And last year was the Pride Jubilee, which was 50 years since 1969. And if you look over time uh, and about queer history, you, you see the moments where things change. You see when laws change, when things like same-sex marriage came into account. And I guess if you're, if you're being quite cynical, and, and I think it's important to remain cynical and critical about things sometimes, is I think at a point where being LGBT became more normalised rather than usualised and became more heteronormative, i.e. queer lives started to look more like straight lives because people could get married, people were having kids. I think that's the point where people started to say, well, we could make Pride something more for the mainstream. And that's where things started to change because the roots of the protest started to move into a celebration. And rather than protesting for rights, because those rights had been granted and had moved forward, people were celebrating those, those rights and what had come with them. And when we did some research a couple of years ago, we we asked people here, what does pride mean to you? And 78% said it means it's a celebration, uh, whereas 42% said it's it's a protest. But then when you drill down on those numbers and the the people who say each of those different adjectives, um, you hear that yeah. the people who aren't mainstream white, mainstream lesbian and gay um, are still pushing for more of a protest than a celebration. So I, th- I think the the movement changed as society changed, and brands realised an opportunity. Um, but I, I would also say that. LGBT people who were out and comfortable at work, which started to happen really over the last 20 years, were saying we want to take our identity and take the banner of the company we work for and and take that to the streets and show people that this is an inclusive place to work and to signal that. So I think lots of things came together. It wasn't just one thing that that happened to it, but I I think definitely legal and, and changes in the law were the points at which it moved from a protest to a celebration.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up employees themselves that is also something that I think gets lost in the discussion. And of course, here in the U.S. just this week, we had a major Supreme Court decision that, um, you know, a ruling that it's no longer legal to fire someone for being LGBT, which to the surprise of many people was still legal in the majority of U.S. states. And that really is transformative for the business community and the advertising community. But you have a good point there. A lot of these, um, These corporate sponsorships, I believe, did start with employee resource groups saying, we want to participate in this, and we want to know that Wells Fargo or whatever brand that they work for is behind us. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of how things go in the other direction as well, because I think, especially over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a massive uptick in this sort of like revolutionary political uh, evolution among brands, where brands are tweeting... Black Lives Matter, or we stand in solidarity with black trans women, or we stand in solidarity with the LGBT community uh, posting something about Pride being a protest. Like, we're seeing this sort of revolutionary rhetoric among brands. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think that is happening, and why do you think? marginalized communities like the LGBT community, the black community, Muslim, trans, all of these different marginalized communities, why are we putting so much pressure on brands to sort of reflect our values back at us?
1: So if you think about agents in society and the the different factors that you have, you have government, you have politics, and you have business as a huge agent and vehicle for change. And at a time where governments and politics appear to be failing us certainly in the UK if you see the response of our government to covid i think again it it's not a secret it's a similar feeling in the US that's when people are looking at government uh, looking at businesses and saying well, well we need you to step up because you're you're the place we spend our time in and actually businesses can have a huge influence and impact on governments. And I think that's well. That's where it's coming from. I think another factor is that younger people and Generation Z have higher standards for what they want, because they're able to see more, they're able to share more, um, and they're not having news and current affairs filtered to them through media outlets. In all cases, they're, they're able to make their own opinions and share that quickly. So I think those sort of um, macro changes are happening. And then Around boardroom tables, there's the fact certainly that people are under lockdown. They're at home. They're feeling more reflective. I think COVID put a lot of things into um, put a lot of things into perspective for leaders who were suddenly not in the corner office, not able to throw their weight around in, a, in an office environment, and, and actually thinking, well, what, what kind of leader do I want to be, and what do I want my business? to stand for also in the context of governments not holding a higher moral ground so i think it's fallen onto businesses for for that reason i think the challenge we have is that if you look at democracy democracy is where there can be equality because it's a democratic process whereas businesses aren't democracies by the way that they are built they are built on structure and authority um, not on democracy so that's where i think businesses are feeling a challenge because they have been developed in a certain way that has uh you know used in certain brand cases stereotypes has used slavery in order to grow to where they are and that takes a lot of unpicking and a lot of undoing so while while some brands have responded probably because they felt there was a knee jerk and a, and a need to because people were crying out for it a lot of them now are saying well actually we've got to do the work to to dismantle some of this and like you say It does feel like something of a revolution, because for the first time in certainly my life, I've seen people challenging things as simple as Uncle Ben's and saying, what is this brand? And we need to pull it because of the roots that the brand finds itself in. Um, So, yeah, I I I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's just there's so many factors at play that you can't just say, well, there's one reason why governments uh, and why businesses feel like they need to respond right now.
3: It is really fascinating from within the advertising and marketing community to see this sort of brand um, uh, uprising. And I guess I also wanted to ask you, because we are seeing so much of that in so many different ways, but we're particularly seeing it as a response to the Black Lives Matter protests and to the black community's issues with police and um, reparations and all of these issues – I wanted to talk to you about how the LGBT community is somehow often seen as kind of siloed from other identities. But as we know, in reality, the LGBTQ community is black, it's brown, it's disabled, it's trans, it's Muslim, it's all of these marginalized identities because there are people in the community from just every every single background and they've sort of come together under this one... Um, Rainbow, not to be cheesy, but, you know, the, the rainbow works. Um, you know, you, and your, your firm, you work so much around multicultural marketing and diversity. I, I guess I wanted to ask you, how do you think that um, that marketing and representation can really highlight the intersectionality of the LGBTQ community and not silo these identities apart from each other?
1: The way that the LGBT narrative has been built through marketing over the last few years has been something of a sanitized version of it, I would say. I think people rely on, certainly for gay men, they'll rely on white gay men who are chiseled, who have really good bodies, and because they know that that will will sell, and that's a stereotype that they want to portray. So I think people haven't really helped themselves when they think about the community in in what they show where people really struggle is around the the word intersectionality so when two protected characteristics overlap to create further discrimination people really struggle with that because they don't know which foot comes first so do, do you put forward your race foot first do you put forward your your identity and and i always think that behavior comes down to structures. So when it comes to diversity, what businesses have done over the last decade or so is create a tick box approach to diversity that's formulated on Noah's ark which is we'll have two of this color and two of this sexuality and two of this type yeah the re- and the reality is as you say it's a real blend and a mix of of what someone is i speak as a as a as a brown person with indian heritage who is uh, who is brought up muslim and is muslim um, and is a gay man that that is that's multifaceted and i think marketing for a long time has relied so heavily on stereotypes of what uh, people who are men should look like what people who are women should look like what people who are white should do what people who are black should do so all of that seems to be crumbling down in part because you know younger generations are more mixed race because there has been more travel over the years and you're seeing more intersectionality being um being bred in in the way that people are so i i I think it's because some of the structures have been broken and people have felt like they have to tick a box as opposed to consider Diversity and inclusion by design.
3: Yeah, for sure. I love the Noah's Ark analogy. Two of each, <laughs> and we're good. Well, just uh, check it off uh, the box. Two
1: lesbians, two gay people, two bisexuals, two trans people, and then we're done. One of each color.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, since you since you did mention uh being brought up Muslim, I wanted to ask you a, a bit about the overlap between queer and Muslim identity and and visibility. And you know, that's I just want to acknowledge too, it's it's something that's still to this day, I think really surprises a lot of people that you can be queer and Muslim, that you can be trans and Muslim. And here in the U.S. we have, um, of course, Blair Imani, a queer Muslim influencer who is very outspoken and does a lot of work on visibility.
1: Just on a podcast with her an hour ago. She's amazing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Great. I wish, I wish she was joining the conversation, but she's sort of spiritually in the room with us. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the work you've done there in terms of sort of bringing lgBT pride and and making a space for Muslim queer and trans people within that um, and just you know how you think th- what the challenges are there and sort of like what the progress has been.
1: yeah, sure. So I remember uh, years ago when when i when I first came out, i I would think about the fact that I'd never really seen many gay Muslim people and then that made me think maybe maybe we don't exist um and after time i realized that 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 we do it's just that the the pressures within the muslim community to stay in the closet to pray the gay away are huge and um there's someone called Mossin zaidi who's who's written a book a dutiful boy about his experience of that um which is well worth looking up and when I came out, I realised I had to do something about that because if I if I couldn't see it, then then I needed to be it for other people. So I wrote an article for for Vice, and I wrote the headliners: Can a Muslim be gay? Because that's what I used to ask Jeeves many years ago, um, and <laughs> I still laugh about that because I think it's it is about the visibility. So the the progress that I've seen certainly is that there are more queer Muslims who are out there and visible, like you mentioned, Blair Mossin is another Asifud Lahore, who's a, a Muslim trans person here, is is very vocal. That that's part of the way. And I think within the Muslim community there are challenges and issues of of finding acceptance because of uh, one of the one of the um surahs or one of the stories in, in the Quran which has similarities to Christianity. So that that's still something that needs to be t- tackled. Uh, and then within the gay community itself, because of the homogenous nature of how people see um, the gay community and, and potentially how some gay people see themselves, they, they don't have space for difference. And so you can find racism within uh, the gay community. And and lots of people think that just because you're in a marginalized or minority community that you must de facto be accepting. Um, not not true. Like some some. some Gay and lesbian people can can also be bigots. It's not just because you're you're gay that you get a free pass to equality. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think there's that's that's another challenge. It's kind of finding the intersection between the two. And and I talk about being a gay Muslim as being in the world's smallest Venn diagram because it's a very small overlap. But actually, since being in here, I've found a lot of other voices, and and that space is growing.
3: Do you feel like when you see corporate LGBT marketing, which, as we know, has just become huge over these last couple of years, I mean, the amount of money that is poured into LGBT multicultural marketing each June is just massive, and it really does reach the community, and it also reaches everyone else who wants to see that those brands are LGBT-friendly. But have you ever, you feel like you ever seen Muslim inclusion in those campaigns?
1: Have I seen... I, I can't think off the top of my head. Yes, there's a, a visible gay Muslim in an advertising campaign or in a marketing campaign now that you say it. Um, no, no, I don't think I have. Um, but I think it's also because of the risk. Like broadly speaking, you you barely see Muslims who are not LGBT in in advertising and marketing um, because people have a fear of what might happen if you actively target someone. So at The Unmistakables, we we launched a Ramadan report where we looked at... um, how muslims feel and how muslims are targeted and thought about within marketing and and we're just missing in part because we're not in the industry um because it doesn't feel like a place of acceptance for for many um but also because there's this general fear which could be because of anti-muslim feelings or could just be because people don't know what would happen um on their social media if they if they featured a muslim person um I th- and I, I I can't do everyone a disservice. I think some people do feature Muslims, but they often feature us in in stereotypical ways or in, in white lifestyles, especially in Western markets. So there's still a bit of work just to be done broadly on Muslims as a starting point. And then working up to the intersection is probably going to take five to 10 years.
3: Well, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for getting into all of these you know, really complex and nuanced issues, and I think that this has been so enlightening in terms of not just how the intersectional intersectional identities in the LGBTQ community work, but how the world sees that community and vice versa. So I, I so appreciate your time, and again, congratulations on being one of our Pride
1: Stars. Thanks, thanks so much. It's been it's been great to to be on, and yeah, it's it's great to hear that you're following the unmistakables and, and the work we're doing. We're we're really pleased and and humbled by that.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us,
1: Mary. Great interview. Thank you so
2: much for that. I thought that was just really interesting, and we'll look forward to seeing what Assad and the unmistakables continues to contribute to forward momentum. But thank you so much for that interview.
3: Thank you, Doug. It it was awesome talking to Assad, and and so. Great just having him be a part of Pride Stars and all of the wonderful people that that we're honoring with Pride Stars. I can't wait to hear what they all have to say at next Friday's uh, event on June 26th. We are having a special Adweek Pride Stars conversation that's going to be moderated by... Sarah Kate Ellis, the president and CEO of GLAD, and a number of the Pride Stars honorees are going to be joining in on that. So that's going to be really exciting. They're going to be talking about Pride, protest, and all of the changes that we're seeing right now. So I hope that everyone listening will also come back for Friday's event.
2: That's great. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, my interview with Lincoln Stevens, the founder of the Marcus Graham Project. We'll be right back. When was the last time you set aside time for professional development? With the Institute for Brand Marketing, an educational program designed in collaboration with IBM Watson Advertising and Adweek, you can access complimentary courses at your own pace, including our newest course, Technology in the Creative Process, How AI Can Future-Proof Your Strategy. Brush up on your skills with compact lessons that address strategies and technologies to help you navigate a changing world. Visit adweek.com IBM to get started. That's adweek.com IBM. All right, we are back, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very pleased to bring one of my great friends and one of the great leaders of this industry to the second part of the show and have a conversation about what's happening in the brand community right now. My good friend, Lincoln Stevens, the founder of the Marcus Graham Project. How are you? I'm
0: doing great, how are you
2: doing? You know what? I'm good. It's been it's been a very busy past couple of weeks. So I just want to take a look at this broadly, whether it's agencies, whether it's brands. What have you observed that you and you and I have talked about this offline? You know, talk about the things that you feel have been beneficial and positive in mm-hmm. the face of a lot of. Deeply ingrained and long-standing issues in the industry around racism
0: What I think has been beneficial and positive Has been the the moment in time that we're in that really actually required individuals companies to really have have more discussions and think about what they are doing or not doing as it relates to whether it's economic justice or social justice, racial justice, it's made some required conversations happen that had just been suggested. I think that that's good because even though there are some knee-jerk sort of reactions to some things, I think it has brought along more dialogue. Not that we need more talk, but it's brought more dialogue that can hopefully lead and will hopefully lead. No, let's take all that out. Will actually lead to some substantive collective impact, which I think is the important thing. Uh, and I think that's the thing that I'm loving and seeing is groups of people that had not been, you know, personally, groups of people that hadn't been on text threads together. First and foremost, checking up on each other. You know, we check in. How, how are you doing today? That is a greeting, as we so often use, but like, how is your spirit? How is your energy? All that type of thing. And it brings us back to the type of humanity that we should be always existing in rather than, you know, sort of cogs in a wheel. And so I'm, I'm loving seeing some really authentic and empathetic sort of moves to really check up on the, the condition of the human spirit that's out inside of our industry and out so I'm loving that positivity.
2: I think what's great also is that the younger generation, especially of black talent, is really getting into this in a way that I think, and you and I have known each other for, what, 10 years, something like that? Yeah. So. And we've continued to have this discussion, like, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? What's it going to take? And uh, to, to move us away from having this circular conversation, what's going to break that circle? And it feels as though that with 600 and rising, the four A's really partnering with them, I think that's a that's very much a, a big positive push in the right direction. It's also a tribute to people like you and Derek Walker and, you know, Danny Robinson, Shannon Washington, people who have come up who are a little bit more experienced. And I'm not going to say we're older, but we are. Um, but but, <laughs> but I think there's an energy around it that's different. What are your observations about that, especially with the young talent coming in and really grabbing a hold of this in a way that uh, I think demands a lot of attention, care, and... Um, you know, pay attention, you know, there's, there's not a word for it, but pay attention and get to
0: actioning <laughs> part of it. Yeah. So first of all, it reminds me of when we first kind of came on the scene with the Marcus Graham project a little bit more publicly in, in our industry and in trades and so forth, because we were about the same age, probably actually a little bit younger when we first started doing some of this stuff. Um, I think we were like 25 I'm reminded of the receptivity of different generations rather um, to what we were doing. And fortunately we were taught, and I know I was taught to have deference and respect and humility to those that whose shoulders that you stand on. And because of that, I was able to understand and learn a lot of the history of the types of things that have gone on. So, you know, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of comments saying, oh, this is, you know, this is now becoming a hot topic. And, you know, you and I have discussed before. No, actually, there have been very pointed strategies, very pointed asks since the 60s in advertising specifically. So it's not new, but the new energy is there and the new access to be able to spread the word so quickly because the social media is there. Mm. The unapologetic nature of of this generation who is sandwiched in between a couple generations who were very, very unapologetically pro-Black identity, rocking my Afro to a generation of people that had to kind of code switch in between these world, worlds a little bit. Mm. And now you're saying a generation that has a level of increased pride in their identity as black people that is kind of like, hey, I, we're doing this. We're doing this without anybody's permission. We're not asking permission and we're not also not asking for forgiveness. <laughs> right. We're asking you to listen. I think that's the biggest part of my takeaway from the energy of all of the is listen, regardless of whether all of the 12 points or probably the 20 that could be added to it are, regardless of the specificity, I think the overarching theme is listen to what we're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think more people are listening than they had before. So I think that there's a difference between hearing and listening. And I hope that, as people pay attention to and are listening to um, what's being said that they hear more with their hearts mm. and hear more with a true sense of not empathy right and and not not empathy well certainly not sympathy, certainly right. not empathy and perhaps not even empathy, but as it relates to but just intelligence and humanity you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. this what we're talking about is equity and equality and hopefully at one point in time liberation right and so if you if one hears the heart of a person if you have the ability to hear the heart of a person then hear the heart of what's being said hear the heart of people that are protesting whether it's in the street or whether they're Protests, it's silent and behind the scenes. You hear the energy of what the world is saying. And, you know, I think in every revolution, every movement that I've been aware of and studied or watched a movie about or read, whatever, it's always been young people that have been out there. I mean, if you look at, you know, people that are protesting, those are a lot of young people and a lot of people that. You know, they recognize, hey, this really is affecting my future. This is right. affecting whether I have a future or not, right? Because, you know, some of our much older leaders in their 70s, like my dad, my dad's 75, right? Mm-hmm. He, he always says, say, son, I have more past than I ha- will ever have future at this point. Mm. And so when you have that realization, then you understand, hey, well, what more can I do now? Now we need to pass it on. What I what I also love about um, the energy of, you know, some of the, the young leaders, in our industry that are that are stepping up and making statements, is is their receptivity of hearing from previous generations that have the wisdom. I mean, I know I still have that. Right, I'm 39. I'll be 40 later this year. Mm-hmm. So people that have been in the game and that are well in their forties, fifties, sixties, that continue to give me wisdom, continue to critique and say, no, we've done that. Here's what happened. That doesn't mean it's gonna to happen to you, but here's how you could think about it. And I'm receptive of that and, and I love the the folks that are continue to be receptive because it's linking all of the generations together and having an intergenerational movement towards uh, change and, and 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 dismantling sort of a, a system. That's a great point
2: and a great. We'll call that a professional segue into our next topic. Uh, you were on Good Morning America, and yep. you were talking about um, about Aunt Jemima and how that brand is is going away. PepsiCo has decided after 131 years. Uh, It is dropping Aunt Jemima, and this was uh, from our reporter, Lisa Lacey, who's been tracking a a lot of brands that um, use and evoke nostalgia for slavery. So that would be like Uncle Ben's, Mrs. Butterworth's, um, several other brands. But you have a very unique perspective on on Aunt Jemima. If you could just share your story and uh, your
0: experience with this brand. Well, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's, really and truly, uh, and and more Uncle Ben's than Aunt Jemima. But my perspective on Aunt Jemima, first of all, I learned that uh, there are a number of people that didn't even know how it was pronounced. (laughs) I think it's Jemima, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, when we were little, we did not think about it, the racial significance of it in that degree. I also remember, like, there was a joke that people used to say, um, that was like, ain't Jemima, Uh, well, ain't your daddy either. You know, there was a joke. and And I think that that joke, now that when I think about what that meant, it meant that people that made those type of jokes had not had the level of consciousness of understanding really what this represented. So I grew up in the 80s. By the time I grew up, the brand had changed. And Jemima had a pearl in her ear. She didn't have a rag on her head. And she was not the same depiction of Mammy from Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. From a heritage perspective, I take no shame in that person. I mean, I, I'm looking at a picture now of my family members uh, in the late 1800s that were, that were servants and that had just came out of, that came out of slavery. I take no shame in, in my past. But the hurt that goes behind the reason why that happened uh, remains for so many people. And for some folks walking down the aisle and seeing these packages is similar to seeing a Confederate flag or seeing a Confederate statue. It's a reminder of how deeply instituted into a company or into uh, society that these things are. I mean, we just saw news that Colgate has a brand that was at one point called Darkies as a toothpaste that's now being, you know, under review, which is different than angel Mom was saying we're dropping the brand. they mm-hmm. It's under review. So Colgate has a responsibility to do more than review it um, because it's completely offensive. You know, but there's history to all this. Uncle Ben is the story that they say about Uncle Ben is that he was a black farmer in Texas. And my grandfather, after he retired from teaching, being a professor, he was a black farmer in Texas. And I have pride about black farmers and and the, the existence of black farmers in this country has gone down so significantly. And the amount of land that we used to own has gone down so significantly but I could have pride in a black farmer. But Uncle Ben is not telling that story, right? Mm-hmm. And, is, and to my knowledge is if that's the heritage of the person that's on your package that is selling rice to the, to the country and to the world, I think you could be a little bit more thoughtful about thinking about the heritage of that person who knew how to grow rice so, so well that they've now created a company around it well, what did they do for his family or for black farmers or anything like that? I just think about those type of things because when I see stories like that, it hits home in a different way, especially when I have resonance with that. Right.
2: I want to ask you about your time. You were at Tracy Locke and one of your clients was PepsiCo. And I'm curious about your experience with this. And and, I think that the other question here is – maybe advice for talent that work at agencies that, you know, may run into a time or a moment where they're working on an account or a brand that they might not just philosophically line up with. So I'm curious about what that looks like. In my first
0: job right out of college, I had a job at Tracy Luck, which had a significant portion of really Frito-Lay and Pepsi bottling groups business. And the team that I worked on was the food service and vending team, which spanned the portfolio of, of PepsiCo brands, Quaker Oats being one of those brands, of which Quaker Oats uh, purchased Aunt Jemima years ago, and then and then PepsiCo purchased Quaker Oats, right? Mm-hmm. I remember thinking about when we we're creating sell sheets, right, to sell sell the portfolio into whatever channel, education or... War Hill Channel and just thinking about the types of things that we are putting on the shelf, putting in front of folks, and early kind of having some moral dilemmas about imagery and messaging and wondering if I had the ability to speak up about it. And I did uh, speak up about certain things. Uh, there were times where in, in my career where there was flavor innovation for some products and it's like hey we want to do a flavor innovation of this specific thing and we want it to be focused around African Americans so let's do a let's do a mac and cheese potato chip or something mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. if you're not in the room to be able to even know that that conversation is happening and then if you don't feel empowered whether it's because of the power that you give yourself or, or most importantly, To make a comment about it and have a solution or have another alternative thought, then, you know, we can see some gaps. But being young in the business, and I think going back to what we're talking about, about being unapologetic, I think, you know, people should call it out. Now, maybe you don't have the answer, Mm -hmm. but if it doesn't feel right to you for whatever reason, based upon whether it's your personal experience and a lived experience, I think speak up. I and mean, I think that's how you cut your teeth in understanding how to have your voice and how to be able to look at a problem and solve it from an angle where you might be the only one that sees the, the actual problem. Right. By, mm-hmm. by, by speaking up and being unafraid to do so and remembering that it is the power that you give to yourself, not the power that someone else gives to you to do it is the power that you unlock for yourself. One hundred percent as a young yep. professional. Yep,
2: I think we could probably go another hour on this, but I we'll pick it. We'll pick <laughs> up the conversation. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up this conversation because you know, I think we, we've we've talked about this as well. Is that there is an older foundation in this industry, and there's a newer one that's being built while you know still acknowledging that the the older one exists and that there's value and there's an opportunity to to morph it and change it. So. I think this is a good step forward.
0: And what we have c- quickly done is recognize that at this point in time, we cannot be fractured across generations to the changes that are being made. And so being able to really come together across generations and perspectives and opinions and egos and all that, everything, get on the same page, be on one accord with it, is what's necessary and is what we're doing because I think there's the ability to perpetuate like the fracturing of generations. I think we see that politically and socially mm-hmm. that through just different types of language and rhetoric, like, Oh no, you, I mean, I just remember when talking about millennials became a thing. It's like, Oh right. you millennials. Like, and people would not, not understand that like I was a millennial and I'm a millennial too. I'm the oldest one alive. Um, but it's like, you know, How are you talking about this generation of people? The energy behind what's in your voice is actually an energy behind something that you did not fix in your own personal life. Mm. The energy behind your disgust about it is actually, could it be jealousy because you don't have access to these same tools or resources? Could it be anger because you had a vision at one point in time that's now a dream and you're seeing people that have a vision in their vision that they need to actualize it. And you're mad about that. I think people that are older should check themselves on how they are critiquing and criticizing the younger, gen- younger generation and think about where it comes from. Is it coming from a place of knowledge and wisdom because they want to impart it? Or is it coming from a place of really and truly, if they were to be really self-evaluated is it coming from a place of i wish that i had the energy to do what they're doing right now and mm-hmm. i think if people had if some people had an honest conversation with themselves about that as they're spouting out certain things on privately or publicly i think that they would tend to find in some cases for some people that it is not critique it's actually envy and jealousy
2: yeah yeah we'll, we'll keep We'll keep tracking this and we'll keep contributing (laughs) in as many ways as we can. But like I said, we could probably go a couple hours on this, but, uh, (laughs) but as always, I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate your experience. Most importantly, I appreciate your passion and care for an industry that still has a long way to go, but there may be some light that we see in this tunnel which I think is uh, heartening, but we all got to keep our foot on the gas.
0: There's absolute light. And um, it takes people like yourself that have the real care and compassion to, to learn all the, all the perspectives and share the perspectives to allow people that can't see the fullness of the light to see it a little bit more. So thanks for what you do. I appreciate it. I appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you, Lincoln. We will talk soon. All right. Have a good one. Okay, that wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us, and my thanks again to Mary Emily O'Hara, our DNI reporter, also in my hometown of Portland. Just wanted to point that out yet another time for all of you. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by CoM and edited by Lane McGibney. You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And if you haven't left us a review already on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, it would mean a lot to us. And it helps new listeners discover the show. I'm Doug Zanger, and we'll see you again next week.